I want to read to you from two places in the Bible. I want to read to you from Psalm 107 uh, and then also from Romans chapter 6. Um, so we're going to start on Psalm 107, which is page 852. If you have one of the brown Bibles from the table, you're welcome to go grab one if you need one. Um, we began this, this little series in the psalm a couple of weeks ago. And uh, as you know, it's a psalm which, which depicts images of, of the kinds of trouble people get themselves in and what God does and how he lifts them out of that trouble. And we're coming to the second kind of picture of the kind of trouble we can find ourselves in. I want to read the first couple of verses, then we'll jump down to verse 10. It begins in this way. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. And down to verse 10. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. Prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Then we have a picture of people who are in in some way enslaved or in prison. And uh, we're going to try and explore what that means. But please do turn to Romans 6. If you have one of these Bibles, it's page 1650. Romans 6 verse 12. Which gives a, a kind of a slant on what this psalm is about. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, this is your body parts, he means to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion, no rule, no authority over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that in your, in your kindness, Lord, You have touched our lives when we did not want you, when we didn't deserve you, and when we didn't seek you. Father, we want to come to you and ask that the Holy Spirit would speak through the power of your word to open up our minds and hearts to what you would say, to bring freedom and a sense of joy in your presence, of new life, of turning a page, and of fresh beginnings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The psalm is talking about 
those who are caught in some kind of enslavement, in some kind of prison. They sat in darkness, in the shadow of death. They were in bonds. And it is not talking about a, a physical prison as such, of course. Um, I don't think the, the psalm is to be taken literally in its, the images that it gives. Because you can be in a literal prison and be happy. You can be happy in God in a place where you are physically bound. Um, we see this in the New Testament, how Paul and Silas, you know, they were in the Philippian jail in Acts 16. We were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, how they are singing their hearts out to God at midnight, keeping all the prisoners awake because they're happy people. They're not, you know, you can't restrain them. And later on in Paul's ministry, when he's writing to the Philippian church in the Roman jail cell, he keeps talking about what it is to be happy. He says things like this, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. Be happy in Jesus, he's saying. And there he is in what you and I would consider the worst of physical circumstances, the very worst, which tells you, crucially, that your physical circumstances do not determine your joy. They don't determine whether you are happy in life. And the flip side to that, of course, is that you can have a very surface-level, comfortable, even successful life and inside, in an interior way, be miserable and bound, be in some kind of prison, be in some kind of slavery. A couple of examples, very public examples of this, which just illustrate what I mean. In the late 80s, Kurt Cobain formed the band Nirvana, and by 1991, about four years after the band was formed, they, their album Nevermind uh, hit the shelves, and it was extraordinarily successful. And this kind of, you know, basement guitar rock band had hit the scene big time. And you'd think, wouldn't you, that success would equal happiness. But it seems that for the next few years of his life, the very opposite was the case, that it sent him into a downward spiral of feeling inauthentic and feeling bound and feeling some kind of misery from which he could not escape, which came to the point in 1994 when he, he committed suicide. Very public in the sense that he was so well known. But a perfect picture of what it is to be surface level, have the perfect existence, but in, t- in your inside, to be utterly bound, to be totally miserable. You know, he... He felt he hadn't really been living a real life. That was the kind of words he used when he wrote his suicide note. There was also, I was so, you know, a few years ago, it was an interesting one. In 2010, I think it was, John Mayer, another massive star, um, was interviewed. And uh, he, he talked about the challenge of, of pornography in his life. And here's a man who... Is, is practically a rock god, isn't he? And could have anyone he wants on the face of the planet. But his words were, he said, this is my problem now. Rather than meet somebody new, I'd rather go home and replay the amazing experiences I've already had. And it just shows you, as so many other stories we could choose from show us, that having a surface-level, content, happy, successful existence does not mean that you are you're healthy in a spiritual way on the inside, does it? It doesn't mean that at all. The book of Ecclesiastes explores this. It's written by, probably by King Solomon. 
very wise man in one sense, but also the most foolish man in another sense. He, he was very clever, but he also, in his, in his wealth, in his, his dizzying wealth, he, he explored every avenue of human pleasure and discovered that all of them were dead ends. And he writes about this throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a meditation on the pointlessness of life without God if you're not putting God first. It's, for example, in Ecclesiastes 2, he says, he's just sort of, it's almost like reading his journal. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And he describes all the pleasures that he decided to try out. Everything that would please his kind of senses. And then he comes to this conclusion. He says, I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Think about Kurt Cobain. Think about John Mayer. Think about King Solomon. If you go on, we just endlessly list examples of this kind of thing. What it is to have a happy life on the surface, but in the inside to be bound in some way, to be in some kind of prison, to be totally restricted and restrained and to have no real joy in the deepest part of you. And the reason why we need to understand this is because what we're try- I'm trying to help you understand is that this prison that we're speaking about is a spiritual reality, not a physical one. And the implication is that what I'm going to describe in, as we just open up this psalm may well resonate with many of you. And even if it doesn't, you've got to understand that there are people in your life who, even if it looks fine on the surface, they're in this experience. This is what they're going through. So I want to talk to you about the prism, then the prayer, and finally the promise. Just looking at these verses in Psalm 107. The, the prism. He says, Some sat in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. And this is not, as I've said, a physical situation. It's a spiritual one. There's a story, you must, I'm, I'm guessing most of you have seen uh, the film Shawshank Redemption. It's probably, it's in my top three films I've ever seen. It's absolutely a phenomenal storytelling. But in that film, which tells the story of these prisoners in, this, in, this, in Shawshank, in America, there's one older guy called Brooks who's been in prison most of his life. He got imprisoned as a young man for something. And he's become truly institutionalized through his experience of of prison. And when finally in his twilight years, he's released from Shawshank, and he experiences physical freedom for the first time, he goes to lodge in a halfway house, and he writes a letter back to his prison mates, the men who he's friends with. And it's so insightful, really, in the problem of the heart. You can put a man in freedom physically, but his heart is the problem. And he says things like this to them. He says, I have trouble sleeping at night. I have bad dreams, like I'm falling. I wake up scared. Sometimes it takes me a while to remember where I am. Maybe I should get me a gun and rob the foodway, the store where he works, so they'd send me home. I could shoot the manager while I was at it. It's sort of like a bonus. I guess I'm too old for that sort of nonsense anymore. I don't like it here. I'm tired of being afraid all the time. I've decided not to stay. I doubt they'll kick up any fuss, nor, not for an old crook like me. And he, he commits suicide because his problem, of course, is not whether he's physically free or not. His problem is that in his mind, his problem is interior. 
And the reason why I'm stressing this is because I think it's important that none of us blame our circumstances for what are fundamentally spiritual problems. And nor should we blame even, in a certain sense, our psychological state when psychology is divorced from spiritual realities. I think a lot of people these days think that the brain, is, they think of it more and more as like a machine that can be fixed. Certain chemicals and the balances of chemicals and so on. And of course, to only think in purely materialist ways, to ignore the fact that there is a whole spiritual aspect to your being. And that even if you're straightened out in your circumstances and straightened out in your mind, you can still be spiritually in prison, spiritually enslaved. Spiritual prison has to do with your relationship with God. That's what this psalm is showing us. How do you get into prison then? How, does it, how do you get there in the first place? Well, it has to do with the paradox of false freedom. Here's what I mean. If you ask yourself, what is freedom? Most people would think freedom is the ability to steer my own course, to make decisions for myself, to live an autonomous existence free of rule from any external power or authority over me, to be totally unbound and unaccountable. I think that's our society's highest ideal of what human flourishing is, to live the life that you want to live. Maximum autonomy. I think most of the effort we put into attaining equality is so that every single person can have the power to choose their own existence. So this is how we understand freedom. It's, our, it's one of the most fundamental beliefs of what freedom means. And it's completely extracted from any notions of authority and submission. To submit is to not be free anymore. But here's what the psalmist says. He says the reason these guys ended up in prison is because they had, verse 11, they had rebelled against the words of God. So he says the very opposite thing. He says that the reason you end up in prison is not because, the reason you end up in prison is because you've chosen to go your own way. Because of rebellion in the heart. Some kind of rebellion, some, some effort to reject the authority, and particularly the authority of God, then leads you into the opposite of freedom. It leads you into an enslavement. That's why I call it a paradox, because you think this should be freedom. But it's not. It's false freedom. It's a kind of slavery. The, I've heard other people describe this over the years using a couple of illustrations, which I couldn't really improve on. So forgive me if you've already heard this. But the image of, for example, a train. A train is most free when it's running on good quality tracks, tracks that are set down and secure. And the minute that it rejects those restrictions, those bounds, a train no longer functions. It's a useless object, isn't it? And I think that our notions of freedom, freedom which is totally unrestricted power to do whatever you want, it's like the train off its rails. Or another image is of the fish out of water. A fish might sit there in its fishbowl thinking of dreaming of freedom outside of the fishbowl. We used to keep fish, and occasionally fish do make they leap for freedom. It's like finding Nemo moments, so they just kind of spring out of the tank. And you think, well, that really is the measure of the intelligence of a fish, isn't it? That it thinks it's free when it gets out of the tank, and then it just flaps around on the floor until it dies. 
And of course, this is, this is the picture that I think the psalm is painting. You think it's freedom to reject God's authority in your life, and actually what you end up doing is dying. You end up totally in, in an existence which is not flourishing, which is not joyful, which is not happy, which is not free. This is why they're prisoners, because they rebelled, he said, against the words of God. They'd spurned his counsel. And here's how he describes it. He uses a few different ways of describing this experience. Let's see if any of this resonates with you. He talks about it, first of all, as darkness. Some sat in darkness. You know immediately what is meant by the, the image of darkness. It kind of, you know, even if you have no knowledge of the Bible, it's so deeply embedded in us, the difference between light and darkness. We understand this intuitively. And it's creeped into all of our storytelling that's run through the centuries. And even more recently, you think about films like Star Wars. Why is it that Darth Vader dresses in black? Because he represents the powers of darkness, doesn't he? Ignore the fact that Luke Skywalker also dresses in black in the later films. But there, you just, just fix Darth Vader in your mind. Or you think about Lord of the Rings and the power and Mordor is a darkness, a heaviness, a cloud, the absence of purity and of light. And this is what the Bible says actually about God and, and what it is to be in or outside of his presence. Jesus is described as the light, which in John's gospel is called the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness hasn't overcome it. But John goes on to describe this. He says, he says this is a judgment that the light's come into the world. Jesus has come into the world. So none of us have an excuse effectively, but he says people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil Because everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. People hide from God, in other words, because the light is a scary thing. Shame keeps us in darkness, keeps us hidden. So here's what he says. The psalmist says, darkness is a characteristic of what it means to be in the prison, that there's a There's a hiddenness about your interior life. There are things that you are keeping away from God and away from God's people. There's a shame. There's a love for certain things that you know are wrong. He also describes it as a shadow of death. They sat in darkness and the shadow of death. A shadow is not a thing in itself, is it? Except in Peter Pan, when he loses a shadow and chases it and can catch it and Wendy sews it back to his feet. It's a divergence. Let's get back on track here. So a shadow is not a thing in itself. A shadow is evidence of a thing. And what he's saying is that it's as though death is breathing on your neck. Whether the nearness of your own death or being surrounded by death or even the feeling that inside you are already dead, that there is a spiritual death that characterizes your life and existence. Some sat in darkness and they sat in the shadow of death, he tells us. Then he also adds this. He says they were, they were prisoners in affliction and in irons. Now, sin never looks like a prison, does it? Because you wouldn't do it if, you thought, if it looked like a prison. But it gets you. How does it get you? Some of the Puritan writers used to use the illustration, the image of a bait and a hook. A bait works because it's appealing. It looks wonderful until having consumed it, you find that you have the hook in your mouth. And the Bible talks about the problem of sin being like that. The reason why temptation gets you is because it's tempting. Sin is alluring. It captures the imagination. It captures the desire. It captures your, your longings. 
and you don't see the hook. Or you do see it, but you think you'll be, you'll be okay. That's why we read from Romans 6, this verse in verse 16 where Paul puts it like this. He says, don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. There it is. The Bible tells you that when you start giving your life over to sin and rather than to God, he says, you end up being enslaved. It's the bait and the hook. It looked so appealing and then you end up hooked. You're not free. You thought you'd be free, but it's not freedom. The reason why it's described as slavery is because there's a sense of it being inevitable. Eventually you end up in a life where you can't change yourself. It feels miserable and hopeless. There's no real way out. So this is how the psalmist is describing this prison. It's darkness. It's a shadow of death. It's prison as an affliction in irons. And then he adds this. This is perhaps the most scary part of all. He says, so he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. There's another aspect of it. The reason why I say this is scary is because what he's describing, this prison, is not just that you're away from the presence of God. So God's over there and you're here in the darkness, away from God. It's, it's much worse than that. It's rather that you're in God's presence, but God's, God is against you. He sets himself against you in some way. He bows you down in hard labor, he says. Now this is why the Bible describes spiritual reality. It says that God, God cannot abide sin. And that he will deal with it in our lives. He bows them down with hard labor. For the Christian, this is the experience of, of the father's discipline in your life. Like any good father, if he loves his child, he will discipline and correct his child. I think that's the essence of what he's, the psalmist is speaking about here. It's not that God doesn't love you, but rather that he wants you to change. He wants to deal with you. So he bowed their hearts down, it says, with hard labor. There's a proverb that says, the way of the transgressor, the person who, who leads a life of apparent autonomy, but actually just going against all of God's will, the way of the trans- transgressor is hard, or more literally, an enduring rut. I love that way of describing it. The way of the sinner, he says, is an enduring rut. You find yourself in a rut, and there is no way out. Ultimately, you end up frustrated with yourself, frustrated with life, unable to change, unable to be the person you want to be, and totally unhappy. Now, if any of that rings true in your experience, I want you to think how, what happens in this psalm, because evidently there is enormous hope. Which brings us on to the prayer. It's the same prayer that echoes all the way through every picture in this psalm. He says, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Some people mock us for believing in prayer. They say prayer doesn't work. One of the greatest evidences that prayer works is the extraordinary transformation of individual lives when they surrender to God. People who are beyond the hope. I wanted to read you a story that just a short autobiographical story, a man called Curtis, Curtis Griggs. Curtis is the brother of a good friend of mine called Donnie. Donnie's a pastor of a church in North Carolina. and I love him to bits. He's an amazing guy. He's preached at Grace before. Some of you might remember him. And Donnie's family have been in trouble a little over the years, and particularly his brother. 
And I want to read to you the story. Donnie pastors a church, a large church in, in, in the States, but you'd never think that this kind of trouble might affect him so closely. But here, here's Curtis' story. He says, I was raised in a good Christian family. However, in my early teenage years, my father got into some legal trouble, resulted in a prison sentence. And by this time, I'd already ex- started experimenting with drugs and alcohol to seek popularity among my peers. For years, I told myself, that I had a relationship with God, but that was a lie. By the age of 16, I'd begun a downward spiral which led to doing hard drugs and finally IV drug use. I lost so many friends over the years to drug overdose and suicide. I tried running from my addiction that I'd become a slave to. Can you see the language that he uses of slavery, of darkness? But he says, I could never get away. I know God had a call on my life, but I didn't think I was good enough. I would lay in bed at night and pray, God help me, but I never expected what would happen next. He says, one morning after getting high, the police busted into my bedroom where I was laying and had arrest warrants for me. While in jail, I received several felonies that the authorities had on me from previous months. I started to feel hopeless and alone. Withdrawal from opiates and benzos led me to a psychotic breakdown which resulted in me hanging myself in a jail cell. I didn't realize how dark the situation had got when Donnie mentioned this to some friends um, a few months ago. And to read this was a surprise to me that his brother had tried to kill himself. He says, the enemy thought that he had me where he wanted me. I was on the brink of death, but God wasn't finished with me. And he quotes the verse in Philippians, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. The promise that God will not finish you with you. He will, if, he, if you're in his family, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna keep hold of you. He says, a couple of weeks later, after being released from the hospital, I was sent back to jail. One night, I cried out to God in a small jail cell all by myself. I confessed, God, I can't do this on my own. Please change my life. Save me from what I've become. You can see the the sense that we all recognize of self-loathing, of self-hatred in a life that's out of control. And then he says, then I felt the presence of God and his mercy. He was bonded out of jail by his brother, by Donnie, who had never given up on me, he says. And he and my parents stood in the gap and prayed for me over the past 20 years. He contacted Pastor Mike at Teen Challenge, which is a Christian organization, told him he needed help. He's been there for seven months. And his life has turned around. This story just came out this week. Curtis, I've seen pictures of him. Donnie sent me pictures of him before and after. He was totally wasting away under the power of his, really of his sin, but of his addiction. You know? And now he's looking healthy and happy and whole. In this retreat center in the Smoky Mountains and I just thank God because, you know, this was hopeless about three months ago. And now Curtis is is happy for the first time in years. And I read you the story because I think it it just struck me as being the perfect parallel for what this psalm is about. They sat in darkness, in the shadow of death. There he was. He even tried to kill himself. He was a prisoner to his own sin and his own addictions. 
And then he cried to the Lord. He heard his prayers, didn't you? God, help me. And then that absolute brokenness when he was in jail. Change me, God. I don't like what I've become. That's the prayer that the psalmist describes. Now, I think the reality is that sometimes we, we pray and we don't see the change that we want in our own lives. We don't see the freedom come immediately. And we ask the question, why? And I think there's an element of mystery there. God has his own ways of dealing with us in his own timing and plan. But one clue that the New Testament gives us is the difference between what can be described as a kind of worldly grief and a godly grief, that there's two different ways you can feel sorrow. And Paul puts it like this. He says, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In other words, you can feel sorrow that causes you to ask God for help, but really... It's not the sorrow of a humbled person. It's the sorrow of a person who sees himself as a victim and feels self-pity for your situation and your circumstances. And the problem with feeling like a victim and, 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 rec- and, and in, sort of indulging self-pity is that all those things basically are rooted in pride. You're saying, it's not my fault. And I think that's the kind of worldly grief Paul describes from which you do not experience freedom because your heart is not really to surrender to God. But Paul goes on and describes godly grief, the kind of sorrow which leads to that utter brokenness like Curtis experienced, from which God then begins to lift you. He describes, Paul describes it with language like this. He says, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation What fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. There are many examples of this, aren't there, in our own experiences as well as in the Bible. I think about the rich young ruler, this young man who came to Jesus and said, asked him the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now he's speaking to Jesus. It's kind of like a prayer, isn't it? There he is. He's praying to the Lord, except he's there face to face. How can I be saved? So as much as asking him, would you... Can you save me? Can you show me the way? And Jesus, looking into his heart, really, diagnoses his spiritual problem and says, this is what you need to do. You need to give away everything that you have and then come follow me. And it says, the rich young man, it says he went away disappointed or dismayed because he was very wealthy. And that's the difference, isn't it, between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow wants God's help but doesn't really want to change. But the godly sorrow says, everything I am and everything I have is yours, O God. You alone are the answer. And that's where God has to bring you if you want to experience the kind of freedom that the psalmist describes. And they cried to the Lord in their distress, and he delivered them. Which brings me to the last point, the promise. The psalm goes on to describe what God has done or does in such people says, he brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. I want you to think about this question. 
What is it that God does in you when he frees you? And particularly he frees you from sin. What is it he does in you? And you can't really understand his work in your life unless you first understand this question. What does it mean to be enslaved to sin? What kind of slavery is this? And we need to think carefully about what it is before we understand how God gives you freedom. Now think, what is this slavery that's been described, that Paul describes when he talks about us being obedient slaves to sin without God? He says, it's this. Consider, it's not that outside forces are in control of you. Whether spiritual or or people or whatever. Because if it were the case, you wouldn't be morally culpable. So it's not that you're being forced by anyone or anything to do things that are against your will. It's not that kind of slavery. And it's not the kind of slavery which is that you are physically incapable of doing the right thing. All of us are physically capable of living a godly life. Our bodies will obey us if we, if we command them correctly. Even those in the worst kind of addictions, like Curtis was, are not incapable of doing the right thing. Physically incapable, I mean. In the sense that if you had a gun to someone's head, they could do the right thing. Still a, your body will still obey you. So you ask, well, what exactly does it mean then to experience this kind of bondage, this slavery like the psalm describes? And I think the answer is this. That the problem is our hearts. That the problem is our desires. That there's always a part of you that wants to do the thing which you know displeases God. Or else you wouldn't do it. So to be a slave is to have desires that you cannot change. Take away the desires and you're free. Change the desires and you're free. But as long as they are nestled in your heart, you have a problem, don't you? Now this is very confusing because you can hate the things that you do and still want them at the same time. If you didn't want them, you wouldn't do them. It's also really confounding because if you've ever wrestled with the frustration of yourself, you know that you can't simply switch off your wants and your desires. You can't change that easily. And I think this is why the Bible talks about sin as a kind of slavery. Because the power, the problem is, the power you lack is the power to change your desires, the power to change your heart. It's not a physical incapability. It's not that someone's forcing you to do things. It's that you cannot change your will. The fountain from which actions come. This is what Jesus said, didn't he? He said it's from the heart that all these things flow. Describes the sins which come from our hearts. So when we reread Psalm 107 and consider it from this lens, that he brought them out of darkness, out of the shadow of death, that he burst their bonds apart, he shatters the doors of bronze, he cuts in two the bars of iron. What is the psalmist saying? He's saying that God can change your desires. He's saying that God can rewire your heart. He's saying that God can deal with your behavior and your circumstances, but he does it by changing you internally, first of all. And that freedom only comes when you can choose to obey him from a heart that wants him above everything else. How does he change our hearts? I think the answer that the Bible shows us is that he does it by 
Not by switching off wrong desires, but by totally replacing them. There was a, a, another Puritan called Thomas Chalmers who used this perfectly memorable phrase. He said, he talked about the expulsive power of a new affection. You ever experienced that in life? How you can love something passionately, but the second something better comes along, it's like that never existed. And he says, this is how it works in the heart. At the moment, the problem is that you might love your sin too much. And you can't just switch off that desire. You can't switch off that love. Because if you could, you'd be free. But you're not free. So clearly, there's still part of you that wants it. But the way God changes us is not by, by law, by telling us to stop. That's what Paul tells us in, in Romans 6. He says, sin will have no dominion over you because you're not under law, but under grace. If you're under law... In other words, if God just tells you, stop this, do that, it doesn't change the heart, does it? You might be able to grit your teeth and try really hard to obey, but it doesn't change your, your instincts, your motives. And this is why the Bible tells us that God doesn't change a human life by the power of law, by telling you what not to do and what to do. How does Paul put it? He says, you're not under law. But you're under grace, and that's why sin no longer has its power on you, why it's no, you're no longer under the rule of sin. Now, what does this mean? To be under grace is to know for the first time in your life how much God loves you. This is what the psalm is saying. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and his wondrous works to the children of man. It's so utterly counterintuitive, isn't it? Because you think if you want to change someone's life, you need to double down. You need to, you need to exert moral authority over them. You need to tell them what to do. And the Bible says, no, that's not how God deals with us. Rather, he, he lavishes his kindness on us, his love on us. Most obviously, in the fact that Jesus bled his life out for you, and that as your heart becomes captivated with the man Jesus Christ, the matchless one, the one whose, whose life was so utterly perfect, who is so attractive to us and in the sense that we're drawn to him, who lived a selfless life and giving his life for us, who was willing to take your sin upon himself when he bled on the cross and now lives and rules in authority over us, when your heart is captured by him, the desire for him overwhelms and excludes all other desires in your heart. And you never really experience freedom until Jesus becomes all in all to you. It's what Paul says. Sin will have no dominion over you because you're not under law, but under the grace, the grace, the kindness, the love, the lavish goodness of God in your life. And then he changes you. That's when the bonds break. So let me ask you, friends, are you, do, you, do you resonate with and recognize anything of what we've described today? Would you say that in some sense you're in, in a prison? 
Maybe you need to cry out to God. Maybe for the first time. Maybe for the thousandth time, but you understand that you have to pray without holding anything back. And ask God for his forgiving power and the total willingness to give your life to him without reservation, without holding anything back. If you're not a Christian, friends, this is basically what it means to become a Christian. It's how it starts, how the Christian life starts. You can't, you can't become a Christian without reaching that moment where you say, Jesus, everything I have is yours. It's not like you can be half in and half out. You can't say, oh, you can have a bit of me. I'll follow you a little bit, but I still want to keep this stuff. Because no person who has that, who's made that kind of decision is really wanting Jesus at all. That's like the rich young ruler. You'll go away dismayed because he'll tell you, no, I want everything. But for Christians as well, it may be that you've walked with the Lord for years, but you find yourself bound in things that you, from which you cannot experience freedom. And of course, there are many ways that you can experience help in those situations. It can be the counsel and love of others in the body of Christ. And one of the gr- first ways that you come out of darkness is by bringing these things into the light, by letting them be exposed, by not letting shame keep you bound. But at its most fundamental level, the only way you can truly be free is by bringing your life to God. So I want to lead us in just a prayer. But why don't we take a couple of moments in our, in our seats just to respond to God personally in prayer. Father, we recognize that our our unwillingness to surrender to you is is usually the root, is always the root of our problems of our heart, Lord. And all of us, Lord, experience that lure, that desire, those desires that draw us away from obeying you, the bait and the hook. Father, we want to come before you, and Lord, for those of us who feel that we are in some way in the prison even today, Lord, we want to lay this before you and say, Lord, we are helpless and hopeless without you. Whether we're praying for the first time or the thousandth time, we want to ask, Lord, that you will hear the heart cry that comes to you, that the humility of brokenness, the honesty of recognizing that these are chains. This is not freedom. This, these are chains. And the hope of what new life looks like when we live for you. And we experience your grace and kindness lavished on our hearts. I thank you for all those people in this room, Lord, who can say, this was my story. Help us to worship you with fresh zeal today because we look back on our past and know you did this, Lord. You did this for us. And our stories are testament to the truth of this. We've encountered freedom when we encountered you. We pray, Lord, that you'd lead many more into a life of freedom in your grace, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Amen.